Sorry about that. Good evening. We're going to be in Psalm 51. If you want to get out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 51. This is one of the most notable psalms uh, in the Psalter because it speaks to a very important event in the Old Testament. When we go to the book of First and Second Samuel, the book of Samuel, uh, we see in that a story of David. Uh, I mean, really, it's, it, it gets to Saul, and Saul becomes king, but then David shortly after is anointed king because of Saul's failure. Uh, and pretty much from First Samuel chapter 17 on, David's the main character uh, in that book. And he seems like he's the hero. He's the major uh, Messiah, the anointed one that God had foretold that that is going to bring great blessing to all the earth because of his greatness, because he is one that God has chosen to be the king of Israel. And he seems like he's going to be everything that that everyone was hoping for. It took a while for everybody to adapt to him being king, but whenever he became king, he was a great king. He conquered much. He had victory after victory. Uh, and God even made great promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But the story takes a major turn in 2 Samuel 11, uh, when David, about the time that the kings would normally go out to war, David decides, I'm just going to stay at home. Uh, I'm just going to, to stay at home and sit on my couch. And it turns out he ends up on his rooftop, where he sees Bathsheba bathing. Uh, and he decides to bring her in and sleep with her, even though she was the right, a wife of one of his soldiers, uh, Uriah. And so David commits a great sin. He commits adultery with one of his soldiers' wives. Uh, and then he calls, after he finds out that she's pregnant, he calls the soldier back from war in order to try to convince him to sleep with his wife, the lady he had committed an affair with, to cover it all up. And when he refuses to do that, he ends up murdering, having Uriah murdered by put up to the front of the battle. Then he marries Bathsheba, and there you go. All his problems are fixed, right? This great sin of David, this great uh, horrible deed that he's done can be hidden, and he can go back to being the great king that everybody thinks that he is. But there's a problem with that as we get to chapter 12. Uh, we find out that God knows what David has done. God has seen what David has done, and and he's not happy about it at all. And he sends Nathan, his prophet, to David, and and he tells him about a man who had had many sheep, a rich man, and another man who's poor that just had a little ewe lamb. And the man who's rich had people coming over, and he didn't touch his sheep. He went to the poor man and got his ewe lamb and used it to eat. Uh, and to feed his guests. And David's enraged and says, he must pay back fourfold. And, and, and he's so upset. And then Nathan, you know the story, says, you are the man. You are the one who has done this. By stealing Uriah's wife and then having him murdered. I mean, he just calls him out. Says everything that David did, even though David thinks he did it all secretly so that no one knows. And David's response to Nathan is, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord, is what he says. That's it. That's all he said. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
David just confesses to his sin. He doesn't, doesn't uh, try to hide it or anything like that. Just confesses to his sin. And then in response, Nathan tells him, The Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. Now, there were plenty of consequences to this sin. Uh, now, committing adultery was a crime that was worthy of death under the law of Moses. Having someone murdered is worthy of death under the law of Moses. So David should have died. But because he's not, because he's the anointed, because he's the one who is uh, king of Israel, it seems, he's being forgiven of this sin. Like, that's, that's what it is. Oh, well, he's the anointed one, so now he's being forgiven of this sin. Okay, no harm, no foul, but there's consequences for this sin. The son that he has through Bathsheba will die. A sword will be raised up in his house, and his, in, in his family is going to be devastation. One son's going to rape a daughter, and then another son's going to kill the son that raped his sister. And then that son that killed the other son's going to end up coming in and taking over Jerusalem and kicking David out for a time. And then he's going to sleep with his concubines on the roof for everybody to see. I mean, major consequences okay, that David is going to have to go through. But David is allowed to live. It's fascinating that, that God lets David live when these horrible sins have taken place. Well, why is that? I mean, all he did was say, I have sinned against the Lord. What, does, what, is, what is there in that phrase? I have sinned against the Lord that God saw that said to God, okay, I'm going to forgive you of your sins and you will not die. Well, we don't really find out in... Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and 13 and 14. We don't really find out what was in that phrase, but because God allowed David to live, he had time to write the 51st Psalm. Whenever we get to Psalm 51, this is what we read at the heading of this Psalm. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So here are the words of David, who after uh, going through this whole ordeal and covering up his sin and now being confronted with it, has taken the time to think about what he might say in response to God for his sin and what he might, how he might speak. I mean, at first all he says is, uh, the Lord, I, I've sinned against the Lord. That's, that's it. But now, what is he going to say as he, as he pours out his heart? What is he really feeling throughout all of this? Well, that's what we find in this psalm. We find what David's really feeling as he says these words, as he is, is confessing his sin to Nathan. And this is what God saw in David's heart as he was saying these things. So let's study this together and understand the heart of David, a man who is convicted of his sin uh, and who is confessing those sins and acting as though he is now repentant of those sins. And let's see what kind of value we can find in this ourselves. First of all, let's look at the first three verses. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Here we see David responding to the fact that he's been caught in his sin by pleading to God for mercy. In these first three verses, we see David ask God to forgive his sins 
four times, four different ways. He says, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sins and cleanse me from my sins. He's begging God for forgiveness. But Nathan's already told him. You have been forgiven of your sins and you will not die. But David still is pleading for God to forgive him of his sins. That's the way he starts out this psalm. Isn't this interesting that this is the way he is viewing this sin? It's not, thank you Lord for forgiving me of this, one, of this horrible sin that I've committed. But he starts out responding with a plea for mercy. He's been forgiven, but I don't think he really feels forgiven. <laughs> The sins that he's committed are so great and so uh, grievous to God that he understands those things and now he is still striving and desiring to understand, God, have you forgiven me? Please show me your forgiveness. He's pleading with God to, to be merciful to him. Think about how people typically respond when they're caught in their sin. Somebody around us has uh, committed a sin against us is their first response, Oh, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. I mean, sometimes. But a lot of times, we hear a lot of different things. We hear, Oh, it wasn't my fault. You know, you did this. Have you ever been in this argument with your spouse where it's not, it's nobody's fault, apparently. Uh, you know, and nobody's at guilt. Nobody's done anything wrong, right? Uh, it was just a misunderstanding. You didn't understand what I was trying to do. And, and I'm really faultless. I really didn't do anything wrong here. And, and, and I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But well, I did what I thought was best at the time. We, we've heard these kind of excuses, these kind of statements. We've said these kind of things ourselves whenever we're caught in our sins. This is the way we typically respond. We're defensive. David wasn't defensive. David did not respond that way. Instead, he immediately confesses and he immediately asks for mercy and forgiveness. David has eyes to see his own sinfulness. That's what we see as we continue. Verse 4, it says, Against you, you only, have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here he's talking about his sin, recognizing that he has sinned, that he has messed up. But notice, who has he sinned against? He says, against you only have I sinned. Well, is that true? Why has David only sinned against God? Why does he view it that way? Well, whenever Nathan talks to David, he actually tells David that uh, you have kept, or you have, um, by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The idea here is that he is the most blessed man walking on the earth. Of all the men in all the world, this is the man that God has chosen, the, the least of all his brothers, a nobody, to be the king of Israel, to be the one through whom the Messiah would come, the Messiah promises have been given to David. He has been given every blessing and every possible reward in his life. Victory upon victory, blessing upon blessing. He has anything and everything that he could possibly want. But he has 
shown utter contempt for God. That, that word contempt means that he considers God as worthless. This is the way that he has treated God who has given him everything. Notice what he says about God in verse 4. And against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. As David is speaking here, he's saying to God, I have sinned against you and I want that to be out there for everybody to see. I want everybody to know that, that what you're doing against me and my house and my family and my pain and my suffering is on me. That you can be seen as just and righteous in your judgment. How many of us uh, would, would say that? And, and notice what he says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's talking about himself, and he's saying, you know, I am the least of the least. Since the, my conception, I was a sinner. I've been a sinner all my life. In comparison to you and your righteousness, God, I am, I am the worst of sinners. I have been continually sinning since the beginning of my existence. I am just a sinner, Lord. That's the way he's talking. It's, it's hyperbole. He's, he's making these statements of how awful he is to exalt God because of how great he is. He's comparing himself and his guiltiness to God and his righteousness. He's showing complete humility before the Lord because of his sin. That's what this is all about. He's recognizing, I'm a sinner. He's not pointing a finger at Bathsheba <laughs> or at Uriah. He's not pointing a finger at the servants who, who listened to him. He's, he's, he's pointing a finger at himself and saying, I am the man. I am responsible and now let's think about ourselves. Are we willing to call God just when we face consequences for our sins? You know, we make mistakes. We, we have all kinds of problems in our families and in our lives. We, we do terrible things. And there are terrible results that happen after those terrible things have happened. I mean, there are terrible consequences to the sins that we have committed. But how do we respond when those consequences come on us? Are we, are we willing to, to call God just as we suffer through the consequences of our sins? Or do we want to turn around and say to God, How could you do this to me? I know what I did was bad, but it wasn't that bad. You know, that's not the heart of David here. That's not the way that he looks at his sin. Instead, he sees that a destroyed family was less than David deserved. A destroyed family was less than David deserved. Wow. What humility we see in this man. And then we continue in verse 6. It says, Behold... You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, 
and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here we we see David pouring out his heart to God, now asking God to give him a new heart. Now this is fascinating because this is a man after God's own heart. Here he's saying, give me a new heart. (laughs) The heart I have is broken. And he he notices some very important things about the heart. Notice verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret He's pointing out that what God, he knows what God really wants from him at this point, and and in the midst of all of his sin and all of his problems, is that he be honest with himself. That he be truthful to, to God about who he is. That he be truthful to himself about who he is. This is what God wants from him. That he is open and honest. And this is what the truth in the inner being looks like. That I'm willing to say... In my heart, in myself, I'm a horrible person. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've treated the God who has blessed me beyond what I could ever possibly deserve. I did that. That's on me. And he says God delights in this kind of heart, in this kind of reaction, this kind of response. But he needs something else. He doesn't then say... You know, I know it's all my fault, Lord, and so now I'm going to do all this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to make sure that I change, and I'm going to make sure that I'm better, and I'm going to make sure that I please you. That's not what he says next. What he says next is very, very, very humble. He says, can you help me? God, can you help me? Purge me. Wash me. Let me hear joy. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create a clean heart in me. Renew my spirit. Cast me not away. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me. Uphold me. You see him pleading with God to change, to fix what is broken inside of him. There's not a determination in David to fix himself. There's a recognition in David that I can't fix myself. I'm so broken. I'm so corrupted. My humility and my recognition that I'm completely lost in sin is not going to fix all my problems. God, I need you to fix me. My heart is seeking after things that it needs to stop seeking after. It needs to seek after you again. And he realizes that. And he's asking for God to help in this situation. When we think about this concept from a bigger idea and thinking about ourselves and those around us, I think it's important for us to understand that we really can't correct the hard heart. We kind of saw this with Elijah, right? He's trying everything to correct the hard heart of Israel. But we can't really correct the hard hearts that are inside of those around us. If somebody has decided that they're going to sin and that they're going to rebel and and live a a life of self-righteousness thinking, I am so great and it doesn't matter that I've sinned, I'm still the greatest in the world. We can't stop. We can't fix that. 
And even if they humble themselves, but they desire those things more than anything else, we can't stop them from desiring that. And if we see it in ourselves, you know, we're, we're, we're wanting to be right, we're wanting to be good, but we need God to help us. We need God to purge us, to clean us, to wash us, to restore us, to help us to get back on the right track. We can't do that ourselves. It's like a dirty person trying to make themselves clean by wiping their dirt around. It doesn't work. Um, When I worked at Stanley Steamer, we'd always make fun of the dry cleaners. I don't know if anybody here dry cleans carpet, but... The dry clean, they would dry clean the carpet, and all they would really do is put powder down and they'd move the dirt around and, and even it out so it looks evenly dirty. That's about all that we can do uh, to ourselves. We were steam cleaners, you know, we vacuumed it out, we did everything right. But, but that's, that's all that we can do. We can just move the dirt around so that we don't look as bad. But God can actually clean us. Notice He says, Make me whiter than snow. What an image that is. Whiter than snow, Lord. Can you make yourself whiter than snow? (laughs) I can't. I can't make myself whiter than snow. We can't fix this. There's some corruption inside of us. There's something that needs to be fixed, that needs to be changed. And here is David humbly asking God, help me, fix me. He sees that there's very serious problems in his heart. He sees that he needs God's help. And he's asking God to help him. As we continue, we see him turn now in verse 13 to kind of a persuasive tone. (laughs) It's kind of persuading God to to give him that new heart, to, to help him to be restored. Notice verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, this is more of a persuasive tone, but notice the order of events that he's talking here. He's not saying, uh, you know, you need to do this because then I can really praise you uh, and, and you, want me to pray, you want me to praise you, right? So you need to forgive me. It's more so an idea of I want to praise you, but I can't do it until you've forgiven me. I can't stand before you and offer you sacrifices to praise your name if I'm still completely lost in my sins and I'm still completely downtrodden by my guilt in all of my sins. It's a desire for God to lift him up so that he can show others how great God is. The the idea of uh, remorse is now turning to a desire to rejoice again. That's what he had said. Purge me that I may rejoice. And that's what he wants to do. But he says some interesting things as well in this. He says, you do not delight in sacrifices or or I would give it. 
God's not looking at this idea that He's going to teach transgressors and He's going to sing praises to God and, and, and then God's going to be happy. That's not the way He's looking at it. What He's saying is, I want to praise you from a pure and clean heart and bring you delight. And if I praise you with anything less than that, it gives you no delight. This kind of touches on something that we, I think, sometimes struggle with. Is that we may think that by coming and offering up our praise to the Lord, or that by teaching other people the Word, that somehow, some way, that makes God like us more. <laughs> and then He'll forgive us of our sins, and, and all these things that we're still doing, He'll just overlook those things. That won't be a big deal. But in fact, if we're still living with those sins without any humility, without any desire for God to cleanse us, then all the sacrifices and all the praise we give to God is being despised. He doesn't care for them. He doesn't want anything to do with them. And this is the way David's looking at this, saying, I, I would give you sacrifices, but you don't want that from me right now. You want, you want me to be clean before I come to, before you to present my sacrifices before you. All that you really want from me right now, as he said in verse 6, is to have truth in my inward being. That's what you'll delight in right now, is that I'm true to myself. That I'm true inside. That I'm giving you who I really am and my heart's desire becomes more focused on you. And then he says also in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. You see, God doesn't want anything to do with our sacrifices. He doesn't want anything to do with us devoting all our time and all our effort to serve Him if first we are not humble before Him and willing to admit our sin. And this is what we see in David throughout this psalm. A broken and contrite heart. What does a broken and contrite heart look like? Let's say um, that I killed your child. And then I, I come up to you and I say, I got you some flowers. I want you to know I'm real sorry for killing your child. Uh, we're good now, right? I don't think so. I don't think that's going to fix it. What if I said, I got you a new car or a new house? Is that going to fix it? There's not really much we can do to really uh, atone for that or make up for that. What we've done is wrong. And, and doing these things don't, doesn't fix anything. It doesn't help anything. But if I go to you and I'm pouring out my heart to you in remorse and in 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 sadness, longing for your forgiveness and understanding that I have done something that should never have been done, that I'm, worth, I'm worthy of death. And I'm laying my life in your hands and I'm saying you're just in whatever decision you make. I mean, I don't think that's going to fix it, but that sounds a whole lot better than here's some flowers. And God's here saying, David's here saying, God... I realize what I've done is greater than, than any sins that have been done in the past. 
because I've been blessed more than anybody has been blessed. And, and I don't deserve the blessings I've received, but I've spit in your face after all that you've done. And he's grieving over the sins that are inside of him. And he's pouring out his heart to God. Paul Tripp said this. He said, You cannot grieve what your heart has not seen. You cannot confess what your heart has not grieved. You cannot repent of what you have not confessed. David has seen his sin. He has grieved over his sin. He is confessing his sin. And he is showing a repentant heart. A desire to change. A desire to be transformed. A desire to be a new person. And that's the repentance that he's showing in himself. Why don't I grieve over my sin? Why don't I grieve over my sin whenever I sin? Is it just not a big deal to me? Is it not something I'm taking seriously? Is it something that I don't really see as that big of a deal? Do I enjoy it too much? When we close our eyes to the sins that we've committed, we don't grieve our sins. When we stop looking at those sins and stop thinking about those sins. You go back in, in verse 1 or verse 3, he said, My sin is ever before me. When we put our sins behind us, we stop grieving over our sins. We put them behind us. You know, this is what we do. We say, uh, I'm, I'm not going to help this person because I really, enjoy, I, I really enjoy keeping my money. I really enjoy keeping my time. I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to serve the Lord because I really I get to do what I want to do. And that's okay. I, I'm, I'm going to act hateful toward my wife or my husband because I get to enjoy. Even though they're suffering, they kind of deserve it. Uh, you know, <laughs> I get to lie. I get to cheat. I get to cover up my sin. And, and I don't have to feel any pain or any conviction because it's behind me. I don't see it. I'm focused on the good and that, that stuff that I'm enjoying in my life. I'm not grieving over my sin. Sin seems beautiful to me. I love it. And if we don't see it, we don't grieve over it, we're not going to confess it and we're not going to repent of it. It just has to happen in that order. It has to happen. And we must do this. And so this is the great psalm for us to understand and learn what repentance really is and why it's so important to us. What we learn in this psalm is that, and, and through this event in David's life, we might say one of the greatest sins in all of the Scriptures aside from crucifying Christ, is that the conviction of sin in our heart is the solution. It's not a problem for us to ignore. It's a solution. We have to learn to embrace the feeling of being convicted of our sin. That means that we see our sin and now it's time to grieve. And godly sorrow is going to produce in us the repentance that we need. 
And this is what David sees. And this is what we must see. That we need mercy. We need to own our sin. We need a new heart. We need a broken spirit. We need these things. We need to say this psalm to the Lord. And and recognition of our sins. Whatever they are. How great or how small. Because it makes us dirty. It makes us unholy and unrighteous. And we can't bring our sacrifices to God without His forgiveness. So we're relying on that every day. We're relying on His forgiveness. And He promises to forgive. Look at Psalm 103. Just flip over to Psalm 103. Verse 8. says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the God that we serve. If we'll only come before Him with this heart of humility, of of desiring His love, His compassion, His mercy, desiring to have a new heart, a heart that loves righteousness, a heart that loves what is good, a heart that wants to sing His praises, a heart that wants to teach the transgressors about how great He is. He says in Ezekiel that He's sending His Son to give us that new heart and that new spirit. That's what He wanted to do when He sent Jesus into the earth. And, and we love darkness and, and refused and rejected the light, but the light is in the world now that we might see, that we might understand that forgiveness is available for all who will show the humility of David. In the very first sermon preached in Acts chapter 2, the people are convicted of their sins, they're cut to the heart, and they say, what, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent. And every one of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. For the gift is for you and your children and as many as are far off who will come to the Lord. And that's, that's a gift that's available to all of us. If we'll just humble ourselves to submit to the Lord, He's willing to forgive us and not bring our trespasses against us, not give us the, the, the punishment that we deserve. Well, I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through. Uh, maybe there's someone else here who does. Maybe 
you want to bring that forward. Maybe you want to share that with others and, and show the, the humility of David and the desire to, to proclaim that God is good. And, and if I'm suffering, it's because of my sin. And it's not because of God, it's because of me. Or maybe you want to be baptized tonight and to be forgiven of your sins. If we can do anything to help you, we want to help you. Uh, please come forward as we stand and sing.